We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Rage of Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. Oh, what up? And shalom. Welcome to the Robin Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Egg. With me, as always, a Rob Van Hoff. What up, Hoff? How's it going, brother? Hey, hey. Hoff is in the house. <laughs> oh, no. We've, start- in, we've, we've started talking in third person already. Uh, what up and shalom to everybody there in the, the chat. The Hoff likes the Robin Caleb show. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> What's up, man? What's new with you? Oh, man. It's been an interesting morning. Uh, the reason that we're starting several minutes late is because Rob and I have been discussing back and forth about certain issues that we're going to bring up today. It's a, it should be an interesting show today. Uh, I feel a little bit unprepared, but sometimes I feel like that, and they turn out being good shows. So, yeah. Uh, what up and shalom to everybody in the chat room. Good to see everybody in there. Looks like we have a nice, nice size crowd in there. And uh, what up and shalom to everybody listening at home and watching on YouTube. We are thankful that you are with us. And let's get all the, uh, you know, uh, the must-dos out of the way. Uh, the Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Find all sorts of free stuff, all sorts of good stuff, videos, articles, you name it. You can find it on Torah Resource. We also sell books and all sorts of teachings, videos. Yeah, so... Go over there, and of course, you can take classes at Torah Resource Institute. You can listen to radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week on TorahResourceRadio.com, also TRRadio.com if you want to put it in there shorter. And you can be a part of the conversation with us in the chat room. Go to TRRadio.com, hover over the broadcast button, go down to Robin Caleb Show, click on that. You will find the chat room button in the lower right-hand corner. Okay, enough of all that. Hey, you know, I should tell all of our listeners, uh, those faithful listeners out there who uh, who spend every Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time with us, if you want to go back and listen to any of our old shows and you do not have a full access pass, you want to, uh, you know, you don't want to drop the 60 bucks a year for a full access pass to be able to listen to anything that is aired on Tor Resource Radio, never fear the Rob and Caleb show is here for you. That's right. Season two of the Rob and Caleb show, which uh, the last the last episode we did for season two was, I believe, the first week of December. That sounds about right. Season two is coming out probably today, maybe tomorrow. Uh, it's going to be, yeah, so you can go back and listen to all of them. And I thought season two was, uh, you know, I keep wondering to myself, what are we going to talk about next? We've pretty much covered everything. <laughs> We, and we changed our tone a little bit, I think. We? Well, we think we did. Our, detract, our detractors say we certainly did not. <laughs> uh, okay, well, before we go on, uh, we got a couple of good segments for you today, I think, I hope. Uh, oh, I should say also, as always, uh, uh, Gary Springer is our programmer. 
Can't forget uh, the support that we get from all the guys out there. Gary Springer is our, our uh, programmer today, as he is all the time, and uh, not just for this show. Gary Springer is uh, the uh, lovely person who programs all of Tour Resource Radio. So if you're listening to it on Tour Resource Radio, it's because Gary programmed it. So thank you to Gary for, pro- for our programming. Mark Randall's in charge of our chat room and anything that has to do with the web. He's the guy who keeps it all going. Thank you to Mark Randall for uh, doing that. And, uh, yeah, okay. So I think it's probably time uh, to hear what Rob has for us in terms of the nonsensical gematria. Let's uh, let's do that. It's Rob's gematria. Welcome to show number 108. <laughs> 108. Oh, man. And we have some gematria for you all today. <laughs> so put on your mystic hat. What are we at, show 108? 108. Our first word uh, that adds up to this mystical number is Oznayim. Oznayim, ears. Oh. And this reminds us of the scripture to him who has ears, let him hear. Uh, and that people are listening to the Robin Caleb show. Yeah. Oznayim. Oznayim. Aleph, Zion, Noon, Yod, Mem. Okay. Then we have another special word or, or construct, B'nai Levi, the sons of Levi. Now, Caleb, I know that I'm not a Levite. I don't know if you are or not, but uh, maybe no. maybe I'm somehow not. today's show is mystically going to, to uh, connect with the true sons of Levi out there. Yeah. And not only that, Bakol Yom, <laughs> Bakol Yom, through all day, in all day, throughout the day, Bakol Yom. And finally, Eloheinu, our Elohim. Now, of course, that's spelled, you have to spell it with the Vav, uh, Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Hey, Yod, Nun, Vav, um, rather than just the Cholim. But, you know, with Gematria. Who cares? You could, yeah, you can move words around. You can add vowel letters if you need to. And finally, Just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. And finally, Hamazon, like Birkat Hamazon, the, ah, yes. the meal. The meal. So, I don't know. I'm going to leave it to your own mystical interpretation <laughs> of the meaning of 108 for these core words for today's show. Yeah. All right. Good times. Good, good times. Okay. Um, so believe it or not, Rob Van, we've had, man, I've had a weird week. Uh, so I don't know how many of you know this. I asked a lot of people for their advice on this. Uh, I should just say, uh, maybe I, uh, maybe I shouldn't announce this yet. I have been asked. No, don't. Well, ah, now, now you've. No, okay, I'll wait. I'll wait. No, no, no. We'll, we'll keep people on the edge of their seat. Other person. Yet. We'll, 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 we'll keep people on the, now, now people really want to know. And you know what? We're not going to okay, tell you. you. No, well, we're not going to tell you. We're not going to tell you. That's that, that's all there is to it. You're going to have to wait until next week. Okay, so in that case, let's move on then. Rob, uh, you gave me th- <laughs> you gave me three clips. Three clips today. Now this is this well, is like yeah. this is a, a amazing feat for Rob to do because normally I'm the guy who has to grab all the clips. I grabbed one clip. Um, actually, yeah. So do you want to do your clips now, or should we do? I have another thing that we could do right now to start it all off. Uh, how about you do it first, then I'll do mine, and then we'll hit to our main topic. I got it. No, we got we got three sub we got three sub uh, uh, 
segments before we get to our main segment. Um, so I'll start, and then you can do yours, and then I'll do okay, the second okay. one. We'll do that. Okay, so this is uh, this is an easy one. From uh, our Facebook page, which you can find, facebook.com backslash, I think it's The Robin Caleb Show. Somebody should check that for me. Is it The Robin Caleb Show, or is it Robin Caleb Show? It's one of those. Somebody in the chat know. room, jump on it, and let's figure it out. <laughs> um, okay, anyway, on our, uh, on our, on our Facebook page, uh, somebody wrote, uh, The Robin Caleb Show, a couple months ago, Caleb mentioned the Sidur he uses. Can you share that information again? Looking for an alternative to the art scroll. Yes, this is a great question. And the reason it's a great question is because, honestly, the work that's done in the art scroll is good work. It's I just loathe it. And I loathe it not because it's bad work or because the Hebrew's bad or anything like that. I loathe it because of the way that it is. Uh... Oh, it's the. Thank you, Lois. Uh, it's uh, so backslash the Rob and Caleb show. Uh, so the reason I loathe the art scroll, that's our Facebook page, by the way. The reason I uh, loathe the art scroll is because. Uh, uh, just the way it's laid out. I think it's very hard to follow. I think it's uh, very hard to stay concentrated on, on prayer when you're, uh, when you're focusing on the format of the Siddur, the art scroll. Also, I don't like their translation. All that aside, uh, I use what's called the Metsuda Siddur. Now, I, I'm not promoting the Metsuda Siddur in terms of theology by any stretch of the imagination. They still implant a lot of Kabbalistic things, just like the Art Scroll does. Uh, you need to be very leery of of, of the actual of the actual uh, translation itself. However, for the prayers that I like saying uh, and are good, oh no, I'm sorry, Lois was wrong. It's backslash.com. I'm sorry, Facebook.com backslash Robin Caleb Show. There's no the. Okay, anyway, um, so the Metsudasidur, the nice thing about the way that the Metsudasidur is laid out is that it has Hebrew on one side and then English on the other. That's it, just two columns. You're not going to have any transliteration like you do in the Torah resource uh, Shabbat Sidur, which, is, which I use on Shabbats. I use the Torah resource Sidur, Tehilo Tamashiach, on uh, Shabbats. Now, uh, my father, Tim Hag, has been trying to uh, do a translation of... Uh, his own translation of the Sidur and supplement uh, apostolic writings into it and uh, put some Yeshua-based things in there as well. He's been doing that for quite some time. He's about, I would say, 85% finished with that. Uh, hopefully, within the next year or two, we'll get him to finish it. Uh, when that complete Sidur comes out, that will definitely be the one that I use. The nice thing about it is that I would say my father's translation is closer to the Metsuda Sidur than it is to Art Scroll for sure. So in that respect, I would say that I like the Metsu Dasidur because it's easily, tra you can transfer from one, from the Tehillot HaMashiach to uh, the Metsu Dasidur. Uh, I received my pocket Metsu Dasidur from the wall, the Western wall that is. I went down to the Western wall, I had an art scroll Sidur, uh, I was getting frustrated with it, and I asked someone if I could trade Sidurs. I found a little Metsuda pocket Sidur on one of the tables there, and I asked somebody, is it okay if I give this newer, better, complete uh, Sidur and take this smaller uh, daily Sidur for uh, Metsuda? And they said yes. So I did. And I still have that Sidur. Anything to add to that, Rob? No, maybe you could post a link to it or something later so people could see it. I will find it. Go ahead cool. with... Okay, so let's... Uh, 
let's ask what your you have a, a clip. Oh, my clip, yeah. And you know, some people who have following the news might uh, already be aware of this. There was a shooting last week in Philadelphia where a self-proclaimed uh, Muslim shot a, a police officer that was in their car. And um, what if if anybody followed that? You know, there was a a you know press briefing or whatever, and the chief of police gave one description, and then the mayor of Philadelphia came along and gave a a different description. And what I did is I just grabbed clips from both those, one from the chief of police, I believe it's the chief of police, and the other from the mayor, and I put them back to back. And it's all in one clip, but if, if, if there will be a pause place in between. Um, but the reason before we play it, I wanted to just kind of frame my perspective that, that I'm hoping to get across is how do we define religion? You know, I've, some people might have read, you know, I, I made this little article about Duplo Legos a couple of years back. It's, you can read it on, on uh, Messianic Publications, I think. Uh, Rob Roy's got it up there. Um, and it's just one way of framing the issue of when we use terms that are so vague and or abstract uh, that we think we're talking about real things uh, we can or we can fool ourselves to think we're talking about real things when in fact it's it's really nonsense and we get into this when we talk about quote religion or quote Judaism or quote Christianity or and in this quote place that it has to do with something called Islam and so uh, that's kind of the setup dealing with abstract terms versus a concrete expression of faith of, of a person's religion and how do we uh, uh, deal with the issue of insiders claiming to represent their religion and then outsiders talking about it but having a perspective very different than the ones of the insiders so uh, it sounds kind of even me talking about it sounds kind of abstract so let's play that clip on defining religion and, and then Caleb be ready to pause at at the end of that first uh, segment from it. The suspect in question is a 30-year-old male from Yaton. He has a Philadelphia address as well, I believe. He has confessed to committing this cowardly act in the name of Islam. According to him, he believed that the police defend laws that are contrary to the teachings of the Quran. Okay, pause. Okay, so that is the shooter's own words. I mean, that he, he said, and we're taking, of course, we, I don't have the recording of his actual words, but I'm taking the police chief's word for it, that this guy is saying, yeah, I did this. Yeah, it's in the name of Islam, and it, that I am protesting the laws that you police officers are defending because it's a non-law, because it's contrary to the laws of the Quran. Okay, that's the... The shooter's testimony. Okay, now if you if you just continue that clip, it'll be the mayor's. Now, I, these were not back to I don't know how much time was between these two, but I think, I believe these are both from the same overall press briefing. Okay, sorry. In no way, shape, or form does anyone in this room believe that Islam or the teaching of Islam has anything to do with what you've seen on that screen. 
that is abhorrent. It's, it's just, it's terrible, and it does not represent the religion in any way, shape, or form or any of its teachings. Okay. <laughs> so, who, who's, a, if we're a, just a listener here, who are we to believe? I have a guy who's, who was dressed in traditional Muslim, uh, I don't know, I don't remember what the, what the garment, the overall. Oh, man, like a, now you're testing me here. But anyway, whatever that garment is called. Is it a frock? It's not a frock, is it? It's like it's not a large. A frock. Um, There's a anyway. name for it. Yeah. Anyway, he he's. It's not a burqa. That would be the. That's the head. <laughs> that's the head thing. This yeah, show. This shows the, our 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 well learned knowledge of exactly. of Islam. Anyway, so he he had. It looked like he had pants on underneath, but then he had this this long dress, this, uh, like a ritual looking kind of dress, um, and then his own words. Yeah, your laws are against the Quran, and um, I did this. You know, I'm just in what I did because I'm doing it in the name of Islam, okay? On one hand, and then you have another guy say, oh, this had nothing to do with Islam, <laughs> that even to suggest <laughs> is abhorrent, has nothing to do with the teachings of Islam. Okay. <laughs> so what's the problem here? The problem is— Wait, hang one, on, though. Wait, hang on, though. Isn't, isn't in the second guy saying, no, we don't agree that it's—now, maybe I mis, misheard him. I thought what he was saying is that— like this isn't the true teachings of Islam. Like we we disagree with this being the teaching of Islam. Let's listen to it again. Where were we? Twenty. Which one? The second half. The second guy. Yeah. Hang on. Yeah. Okay. In no way, shape, or form does anyone in this room believe that Islam or the teaching of Islam has anything to do with what you've seen on that screen. Okay. So what he's saying is is the people in this room we don't agree with this guy. I think that's what he's saying. Like we don't agree that that uh, that Islam teaches this. This guy says it does, but what we're saying is this guy's a terrorist. He's out of his mind. He's he's a moron. Okay, so let let's say let's let's say that about the mayor. So is the mayor going to tell us what true Islam is then? Uh, he's yeah, I think he would. He would say it's a it's a religion of peace, right? Is he is he in a position to define what Islam is? And then who? So then here's the question: Who's in a position to define what religion is is True. Oh, this is going to tie in well to our to our main. In other act. words, well, let's just look within Christianity, just in the same issue. Oh wait, hang on. And now, now Adam brings up a great a great uh, point. He says George Bush taught us that Islam is peace. So is George yeah, I don't Bush? Remember, I don't remember that, uh, but uh, yeah. Well, there we go. It's where we have a, a politician defining what a religion is and is not. When you have someone foot on the ground what's on the ground actually acting. Well, it's the same thing with like ISIS, for example, in Syria. You know, they believe, they believe they are true Islam, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But then you'd have, well, oh, Islam's a religion of peace. Islam wouldn't do this kind of thing. Now we're getting in, a, in an ideological um, polemic, or basically ideological war of who gets to define what is the true, quote, Islam. And here's the problem. It's an, it's an abstraction. The idea of Islam is an abstract term that is never going to be fully defined. Because every, you know, each community is going to come along and say, no, we are, we are the true Islam. Just like you say, we are the true Mormons. You know, those other Mormons aren't the true Mormons. We are the, we still believe in polygamy. You know, the LDS has gone liberal by rejecting polygamy. We're the true Mormons. You have the same thing in 
Buddhism. You have the same thing in, in Christianity or in, in Judaism. Why? Because each of these big umbrellas doesn't, doesn't help. It doesn't serve. It's, it's too fuzzy. And that's why I get back into the, the Duplo Legos here. You, how, does it, how is it helpful for, for our education to have the, the shooter say, Islam is this? And then have the mayor of Philadelphia say, no, Islam is this. Okay, let me play devil's, devil's advocate here for a few seconds. Okay. So you had the same kind of thing going on in Jerusalem in 1948 when the, when the guys walked into the King David Hotel, which was really British intelli- the British intelligence, right? And they, mm-hmm. uh, they, they put, uh, they put the, the bombs in the basement and they walked out. They called. They said there's a bomb in the, in the hotel. They didn't believe them. They blew the, the hotel up and a lot of people died. Okay, so the question is, is that, I mean, were they doing that in the name of Judaism? And would we say that that was a correct representation of Ju- Judaism? Well, it's like the guy we read a couple of weeks ago. Was it uh, the guy who said he wants to get the vampires out of Israel? Yeah. Talking about uh, Christians are vampires because they drink blood. What I'm, what I'm wondering is, are you saying that no one is able to define what a religion is? I'm saying that the words like you know, religion and words like Christianity and Judaism, they are only superficially helpful. And, and, and our example, you know, from last week was that we have these, quote, rabbis representing Orthodox Judaism, and they're endorsing uh, a, a partnership with, quote, Christianity or the church, which is really the Catholic church, in this kind of picture of how we're going to co-labor uh, to bring God's will um, into the planet. And as long as we keep it in these big, like, Duplo Lego pictures— We'll go, oh, oh, yeah, okay, I can sign on to that. But you can't, nothing will, it's not going to stick together. Oh, man, it's not, we're going to have it's fun. It's not going to last. We're going to have fun with the main, with the main uh, topic today. This is, cause does, this is, does gonna, that, is, is, that, is that clicking, what I'm trying to say? It clicks, but at the same time, I think that, you know, we have to be able to use words. You have to be able to use words at some point. Okay, of course. Okay, but, and my point is, is that basically when it comes to religion, but when it comes to a person, when it comes to religion, are, you basically what what it feels like you're trying to do is erase all words from being able to be used. Okay, Caleb, do you practice Christianity or do you practice Judaism? It, well, I understand that we have to define our terms, but I once def, once my terms are defined, I can use those words. I would say yes. I as as a blanket statement of Christianity, if we're going to say that Christianity is simply a belief in Christ, then yes, I practice Christianity. Right. Okay. So I mean, once t- once the term is defined, I understand what you're saying, and I get what you're saying. I, I agree with you. You know, who how is how can this guy say? Basically, what I hear you saying is, how can this guy say? Uh, you know, Islam doesn't believe this. Who's who is this guy to be able to interpret Muhammad as Adam has so rightfully said in the chat room? Who is this guy to be able to interpret Adam, uh, Muhammad and his and his uh, motives and his beliefs, his faith, and uh, you know what he was trying to convey? When he's not commit, he's he has no skin in the game. Yeah, he's not a Muslim. He's not. And he, it's in his advantage to promote tolerance as a mayor. You know, he wants political correct. He wants he wants there to be to- he wants people to get along with each other. So let's not get down into the weeds. You know. We can affirm this idea of, of Islam as a religion of peace and say that these people are, are mistaken. And that fits with, you know, the fact that uh, 
people feel that the the ISIS, okay, yeah, they they are teaching Arabic to their kids and they read the Quran from five year old and all the commentaries and they're living their life as best they can by that. But that's not really Islam. Well, you know, I'll be I'll be completely honest with you. One of the reasons that I haven't touched on Islam a lot more on in the Rob and Caleb show is because I don't feel like I, I understand it. I don't, feel, I don't feel like I know it. So it's hard for me to be able to say, you know, it's hard for me to be able to b debate against Islam because I haven't taken a now granted, obviously, just in a general sense of apologetics, it's easy to, to refute certain things of sure. Islam like the Quran and other things like that, just within a general sense of apologetics. On the other hand, uh, you know, for me to truly be able to uh, to eloquently discuss, uh, maybe people would say I never eloquently discuss anything, but for me to eloquently discuss the inner workings of Islam and why it's wrong would, would take a lot more study than I've done. So I agree with you because this guy, it doesn't seem as though this guy has spent... Here's another way to think of it. Is it that we, we might occasionally need, and we can use those words, but they're absolutely insufficient on their own. Well, they have uh, to, because, yeah, I, I agree, they have to be defined okay. from, from because, the outset. Because you could, the, the basic division even in Islam is Sunni versus Shia, right? Is it Shiite or, or Sunni Muslims? Because That's a big, it's a big deal, which side of the, the line do you fall on there? We're having we're having some weird audio issues today, by the way. So sorry out there for everyone who's hearing those weird clicks. Um, and if people put up with us, yeah, exactly. They'll put uh, up with uh, the audio. Mark issues. says that the robe thing is called a dish dasha. I'm probably saying that wrong, or a dish dasha. dasha. Yeah, that that's fun to say. Now I understand why those guys really like wearing them. What are you doing? I'm going to buy myself a new dish dasha. Oh, I thought you said dishwasher. <laughs> no, 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 no. A dish a dasha. See, I can, I can, I can, I can understand that one. Okay, I got uh, one from. Oh man, I took this down. Did I take it down? Hang on, just a sec. Let me uh, find this email again, real quick. Uh, this could take a few seconds. Oh, I think it came to my other email address. That's why I'm having f trouble finding it. Okay. I'm not going to give the name on this because I don't want, if this person goes to this congregation, I don't want to out them on the air. Hi, Caleb. Dan Juster was a guest speaker at Baruch Hashem in Dallas. His message is titled, The Identity of the Church. This is an interesting, I listened to this whole thing, by the way. <laughs> now, Juster, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't Juster on the board of the UMJC or is he MJAA? I think he's UMJC. I'm pretty sure. They all run together for me at some point. Yeah. I'll okay. look it up while you talk. Okay. Below are two points that are disturbing. Point one, all Jews will be sanctified through the few that have been saved, quoting Romans eleven sixteen. And the second point that they disagree with is the law was abolished for Gentiles, Ephesians 2, 14 through 15. Below is a link to listen, but Jester's sermon. Okay. Yeah. So, and they Oh, he's former UMJC president. Yes. Okay. I, I, that's okay. what I thought. Okay, um, so I listened to this thing. I, I got to say, uh, now I understand subtly uh, Jester seems to be saying both these things. Now, there weren't specific quotes that I was going to pull that was going to show Jester saying all these things. Um, I, you know, I, I was reading something by Lancaster today. He certainly says that all the Jews were sanctified. Uh, anyway, okay, uh, and justified, I think. I'll, I'll find that quote. Anyway, 
Um, so I did listen to this. There was only one quote I pulled from this, and uh, this was going to be a whole segment, but like uh, like our main topic. But you know what? I didn't I didn't I didn't find enough to uh, to really make it a full a full show. Listen to this. To, listen to this though. This is from Dan Jester. He now lives predominantly in Jerusalem, I believe. Um, and now I'm going to hype, I'm going to jump the gun and tell you. I think what Jester is preaching here is the exact same thing that Mark Kinzer from the UMJC, another UMJC guy, uh, teaches in his book, which is that the church is the is the actual plan for the Gentiles. The synagogue is the plan for the Jews, even if they're believing or not. Okay, um, so the Gentiles need to stay over here in the church. The Jews need to stay in the synagogue, and of course, the, the Messianic Jews need to stay in the Messianic synagogue. Listen to this quote. He says, "This is a mystery that was not made known to other times." And then, verse. I should say this. So he's reading Ephesians three, uh, five, and six. That's what he's just read. Okay, and he's going to read the end of it here for you again. He says, this is a mystery that was not made known to other times. And then verse 6, very important verse. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body. Now this goes farther than anything else in the Bible in defining the identity of both Gentiles and the whole church. And I want to explain what's being said here. And it's crucial to get this. Crucial. crucial. Yep. The text talks about the crucifixion of Yeshua abolishing the law and its commandments that stood against us. If you study Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, that you've died and you're married to another, Ephesians, uh, uh, Ephesians, you study Hebrews that talks about the Mosaic covenant becoming old and becoming obsolete, it becomes very clear that the new covenant is talking about a covenantal replacement, that the new covenant supersedes the Mosaic covenant. Okay, the, the New Covenant supersedes the Mosaic Covenant. Now, wow, now, that's, now, that's interesting right there. You know, I haven't heard the whole thing, but isn't it, is part of their group the, the guy who made up the word crypto-supersessionist? Yes. Okay so, okay, so he's using the similar vocabulary. Now, he might be using it a little bit differently here. Um, so, now... I will agree that that in some ways, now th- this is going to get me into hot water if, if I don't explain this uh, correctly. In some ways, the new covenant has replaced, kind of, I, and and that's not even the right word, the the uh, the mosaic covenant. But I don't. I but I'll explain that in a few seconds as we go on. So don't pull that one clip from me, and, you know, and 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 play that on on your radio show. <laughs> <laughs> you got to play the whole thing. Hang on, let's listen to the end of this clip, and then I will tell you what I mean by that. And the New Covenant <laughs> takes into it, if you study the New Covenant from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the way into the New Covenant, the New Covenant takes into itself all that is in Moses that can rightly be applied to the New Covenant order. So the New Covenant is not an anti-Moses covenant, but it's a covenant that is the New Covenant and takes into itself. But because we're not in the Mosaic Covenant, but in the New Covenant, certain things that were in the Mosaic Covenant that were barriers of Jew and, to, to Jew and Gentile are removed. Okay, so... The, uh, there's so much here to talk to. First of all, what I mean is that, and we see in Deuteronomy, it says that you're supposed to write this covenant on your heart. So what's the difference between the new, the new covenant and, and the Mosaic covenant? I'm not going to use the words old covenant because it's not old. 
What's the difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant? The only difference is, is that God writes it on our heart. And what Juster here tries to claim is that the, the, the laws that, what does he say the laws that came between Jew and Gentile are abolished? For who? Who are they abolished for? And where does he get that from Jeremiah or Ezekiel? Where in Jeremiah do we see the, the old, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to write a new covenant on your heart, and the new covenant is going to be the law of Moses written on the heart, except for, and then he gives a list of commandments. We don't see that, right? Yeah. Let's listen, let's listen one more time to what Jester exactly says. For in the new covenant, certain things that were in the Mosaic covenant that were barriers of Jew and, to, to Jew and Gentile are removed. The new covenant is different. Okay, pause there. Yeah, that's it. Things that were a barrier between Jew and Gentile were removed. So what I'm understanding is that he says there are things in the Torah of Moses that prevented uh, a relationship to worship the God of Israel between Jews and Gentiles that now has been removed. Uh, so those laws, he doesn't specify what they were, but he says they have been abolished. For is who? Is that what he's saying? That's what he's saying, but for who? Have they been abolished? Now, keep in mind, Jester goes to a Messianic synagogue. They have a traditional Torah service, the whole nine. Are there Gentiles there? I don't know. Um, but, the que- but the question is, is have these barrier laws, as Jester kind of has put it, are they abolished for Gentiles? Are they abolished for Jews too? If they're abolished for Jews too, see, he's going to get into some really hot water no matter which way he goes on this. If Okay, let's pretend that Jester is going to say that the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7, is, is, given, is, is given to the Jews. Not the Gentiles. Let's pretend that he's going to take that view. Which the Gentiles are going to have a huge problem with that, right? They're not going to have a huge problem with the beginning of the of the Sermon on the Mount being for Jews, but the latter part of it is, you know, the the Christians love love that part, right? So anyway, let's say that that's going to be his his uh, his view on Matthew five seventeen and following. Even then, the Gentiles or the Jews then are supposed to keep all of the Torah. Right? Till heaven and earth passes away. Okay, now we get into the idea of the those commandments are what then abolished for the Gentiles. Yeah, he doesn't have, there's no support that he can find in scripture. So they well, would he say that Shabbat is still is obligatory for Jews? I believe that the UMJC's opinion on the, the Sabbath is that it's an identity marker for Jews. And should not be kept by the Gentiles. So it's not it's not a covenantal obligation then. Don't but it's... don't quote me on that. I, I hmm. that's what I believe. But I but I you know I'm willing to be shown otherwise. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, yeah, he, I, he I, quotes I, like Romans six and seven. Well, of course, the image there is uh, our old man stands condemned under the wrath of God. By the power of the Torah. The Torah, exactly. The sin, by the power of sin, the strength of sin is the Torah. Why? Because it convicts everybody. There is no one without excuse before the Torah. And if you don't have the Messiah, you, we, are, you are under the condemnation with of Messiah the law. And ro- risen with Messiah, we're not a new creation with respect to the Torah. We are 
under the curse of the Torah. The, the curse remains on us. I don't understand why he's saying that that has to do with doing away. It's not like the picture I get is it like if you imagine a courtroom, God's up there as the judge and you're standing convicted be, before the law because you've broken the law. And what he says, you know what? We're just going to tear up the law. We're not going <laughs> to, you know what I mean? No, that's not what happens. The law stands because God is judge. What has to happen is there had to be a death. Okay. And, the, and, and participating in the death of Yeshua, who, though he was a tzaddik, he was without sin, he, he died, and death had no grip on him. By his grace, we have new life in him. But we, do, we can't participate in the life of Messiah unless we first participate in that death. What I see Jester doing here is putting uh, putting uh, uh, more onto the onto the new covenant than what's in in the word. He is putting his own preconceived notions of what the new covenant is into the text. He wants to he wants to hold the line let Jews be good Jews and Christians be good Christians. And my, here's it here's back to my argument about uh, this it does fit with the whole Philadelphia thing. As long as we stick it's almost like he's using the language of the mayor. Oh, in other words, too much on the abstract, too much use of abstract terms and commitment to abstract categories rather than clarity of definition. He's too, he's too much in the abstract realm, in my, it, that would be my opinion here. And I think his reading of, of Hebrews um, is misguided as well. But Hebrews is talking about the Aaronic priesthood. It's so clear. I mean, it's all about the yeah. Levitical priesthood and that the temple was was uh, getting worse and worse and worse. There was political corruption and and they knew from Yeshua's words that it was gonna that it was on its way. Not one stone would be left upon another. That's you know, whether we put the temple uh, or put Hebrews authored before the destruction of the temple or maybe right on the heels of it, in any case all the confusion in the air about what do we do? What do we do? We have no Levitical, uh, we can't keep the Torah according to Levitical laws now. What's going to happen with atonement? I mean, there was a, he, he totally removes the, that crisis of, of faith, of Torah piety that's very real and just goes to the abstractions. Oh, see, it was abolished. It was done away. I, I don't get it. And, and maybe... You know, he wrote a book on, like, Christian uh, support for Israel. I wonder how much, you know, I, not to turn everything into economics, you know, because I, I, God knows his heart. God knows our hearts. Um, I can assume the guy's doing the best with what he knows. But hey, you I know, wonder he, how much he, funding comes from evangelical Christian world. They don't want to—he gets funds from people who don't want to be told that they have to keep the Shabbat. He's, he, they, you know, he's got his doctorate. From an unaccredited Florida oh, really? university. Okay, fair enough. Now that doesn't mean anything. Torah Resource Institute's not accredited. That's true. You know, so, so I, you know, I. I, I have but, to say this about Jester. I'll give, I'll give the guy some kudos on this. He's a dynamic speaker. He is interesting to listen to. He captivates the audience. There's no doubt about that. But he's definitely wrong on the new, new co uh, the new covenant. In my opinion. So yeah, I, I just it doesn't gel with with my reading. I think he's misrepresenting Romans six and seven. I think he's misrepresenting the Epistle to Hebrews. I think he's misrepresenting Paul's argument in Ephesians. I got I mean, it's just totally. Uh, I I got an off-topic question for our uh, for those in the chat room. Is it too provocative to play a clip 
that uses the word C-R-A-P uh, on the Rob and Caleb show. Because <laughs> Rob sent me something, and I know that there are little ears that listen. I've been pondering this. I, th- I think if we, had a, if we had an all older audience, it'd be one thing. But I know we have young homeschooling children listening who can probably spell already and know exactly what I just spelled out. Uh, but we do have another, another uh, new sound clip from uh, Mr. Van Hoff. And this one will go onto our soundboard. Well, I don't like to judge people, but that's wrong. Ah, <laughs> uh, perfect. Okay, let's get to the topic at hand. By the way, for anyone who wants to know, I, I put the uh, an Amazon link on the Robin Caleb Show Facebook page to the Metsudasadur. Okay, this is what we have from our friend Frederick. He says, can you guys comment on this paper? It's gently, perhaps, targeted against Brother Tim's teaching. Tim Haig from the introduction, page one. Okay, so, um, and now this this is from the, he gives a link to this. This is from James Piles, uh, who writes a blog, My Morning Meditations. Uh, Morning Meditations has been going for quite some time. He has a huge listen, uh, readership, I believe. At least he makes out, he makes it out to be that way. Uh, and I know a lot of people who read his blog, so I agree. I would, and I've actually had some back and forth with him uh, before. This article is actually from 2012, September, September 24th, 2012. So it could be out of date. I don't know. Uh, and so he begins by quoting my father. And this is a, basically a response to my father's article, What Version of the Mishnah Did, did uh, Paul Read? Okay, so he's going to start by quoting my father. I put this in your show notes, but I will read it here for those who do not receive the show notes. And this is from my father's paper. The title I have chosen from this study is a tongue-in-cheek attempt to highlight something that seems to be missed by many, namely that the Mishnah did not exist as a written document in the pre-destruction era, so it is quite obvious that no one, including Paul, could have possibly read what is known in our day as the Mishnah. In fact, as we shall see, the Mishnah was not widely read by Jewish communities in the centuries immediately following the destruction of the temple. That's CE, uh, 70 CE either. Uh, for the Mishnah was not published, quote marks on published, as a written document until much later. Along the same lines, it is a methodological error to speak of first century Judaism, for no such monolithic Judaism existed. We must rather speak of Judaisms, plural, in the pre-destruction era. Granted that a variety of Judaisms ex- extant in the first century surely had some things in common, Shabbat, circumcision, the Tanakh, etc. It was nonetheless their clear and, in some cases, radical differences that produced the v- very uh, variegated Judaisms of the era. Unfortunately, the, presup- uh, the presumption of some in the Messianic movement in that the later corpus of rabbinic literature present a monolithic, historically accurate description of the Judaism practiced by Yeshua and his disciples. Tim Haig from the introduction, page one of what version of the Mishnah did Paul read? 2012 Torah resource. Okay, so I'm going to skip the introduction of this. He talks about how he found this article, that kind of thing. Uh, and then he goes on to say that uh, he's met my father, Tim Haig, before. He's had Arab Shabbat. Uh, he's been treated well by my family and my, the congregation I attend. And I admire, this is him now, quote, and I admire and respect him 
as a leader and a scholar, all of which added to my surprise when I realized in reading the introduction to the above quoted paper that he had made some glaring and erroneous assumptions. Once again, I want to once again say that I'm not trying to bash, we're not trying to bash piles here uh, personally or anything like that. This was uh, brought to us by a listener who wants us to respond to this. Okay. Plus, we know that it's a couple years old now. So. It is a couple years old. So, however, it's still up on his site. Right, right. So, okay. He says, I can't think of anyone in Messianic Judaism who believes that the Mishnah we have today is a direct reflection of how Judaism or Judaisms functioned back in the late Second Temple period when Jesus walked among his people Israel. I have no idea, even after reading Tim's paper in full, where he got that idea. Certainly my drive to investigate the evolution of Judaism as it relates both to the ongoing authority of Judaism to define itself across time, whether or not first century halakha and modern halakha can be considered equally valid for the Judaism of their times, doesn't assume a fixed, static, and non-adaptive set of applications of Torah over a 2,000-year span. Okay, let's stop right there. Let's begin with this. This is interesting. So James Piles has done work for FFOZ. He's written, I believe he's written stuff. Maybe he hasn't. I think he has, though. I think he's written some stuff for FFOZ. Um, and then actually, what's interesting about this is this this section right here, this paragraph right here, down in the comments section, the very first comment. Well, wait, pa- pause for a sec. Can okay. I make a point? Yeah, of course. The, could you read the title of your dad's paper, which was also a, he gave it as a conference also, but what was the title of your dad's paper? What version of the Mishnah did Paul read? Okay. It's already tongue in cheek. There's so it, we have to understand that your dad is exaggerating a point. He's exaggerating the case to make a very important point. Right? I mean, that obviously because even the person, it's going to jar the person. Oh, wait a minute. The Mishnah didn't exist in even, but what, didn't exist yet. And let alone would it have existed in a written form that Paul would have sat down and re- read it. Okay, so but 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 Pyle's first critique. The very title shows that it's a caricature. Okay, but but Pyle's first critique of of the paper is that no one in Messianic Judaism and no ministry that he knows of believes that the Mishnah, the that law, Paul would have read the Mishnah. That 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 I think that he goes even farther. That the that the Mishnah cannot shed light on first century Judaism. That's what he's saying. He says, I can't think of anyone in Messianic Judaism who believes that the Mishnah we have today is a direct reflection of how Judaism or Judaisms functioned back in the late Second Temple period. Hmm. <coughs> so what he's saying is, is that no, no one's reading the Mishnah back into first century Judaism. So let's go to Exhibit A. This front, Now, I'm not going to down this because this guy was kind enough to send this to me for free. I asked him about it. On Twitter, he sent me a free copy of it. I know the guy. He's done artwork for my dad's book when he, when my dad worked at FFOZ. He worked for FFOZ. He now runs a uh, organization called Emmet Hatora. I'm not showing this to down this because I honestly have not listened to it yet. However, I have had some discussion back and forth with the person who did this about the name and what is the content of this. It's called Perkea Vote and the Teaching of Yeshua. So Emmet HaTorah certainly is trying to read Perkei Avot, which is part of the Mishnah, a late, the latest part of the Mishnah, nonetheless, back into the first century and say that Perkei Avot was certainly extant 
orally, at least parts of it, were extant orally within Yeshua's time. Exhibit 2. This is my favorite one. Oh, now, first, let's well, We have others, too. We have others, like too. Just the people who will say, who call Paul Rav Shaul yeah. or Rabbi Shaul, they are taking later, you know, Rav Shaul particularly. Paul never called himself a rabbi. I never called himself Rav, but I, I see that on the Internet a lot, people doing that. I see people taking Metatron from later, even later post-Mishnah rabbinic world, even medieval rabbinic world, and saying, oh, Yeshua's Metatron, and Metatron goes back, and it's like this whole picture. I mean, we see this kind of thing, or just like we saw in that movie, remember the clip where Yeshua's citing Hillel? Uh, Yeshua citing the Babylonian Talmud to some Pharisees. You know, we saw that in that movie, Killing Jesus. Okay, so that's why your dad made the provocative title. That he, that's why he gave it that title, to kind of jar people, to kind of see the silliness of it. Why? Because that, then people can go, oh, okay, I guess it is out there. We do see where people have taken, uh, they, ima- they ima- imagine, imagine Yeshua being a sage of the Babylonian Talmud, you know, arguing Gemara. Uh, so, well, look, okay, so Boaz Michael jumps in. Boaz is the, is the president and CEO of FFOZ, First Fruits of Zion. He says, I know of not one Messianic Jewish ministry or teacher that holds the position Tim puts forward. He's talking about exactly what Piles just said. Okay. Now, I know that we're still on the first paragraph here, but I would like to give you Exhibit 2. This from Restoration by D. Thomas Lancaster, published by First Fruits of Zion, page 138, bottom of the page. When the Mishnah was compiled in the late 2nd century and early 3rd century, these traditions, talking of the traditions within the Mishnah, these traditions were incorporated into the document and thereafter became definitive for Judaism. In the days of Yeshua... Yeah. In the days of Yeshua and the apostles, though, such traditions were just traditions, various pra- variously practiced, accepted, and argued. Yeshua himself lived by and even, through, though his compliance, uh, through his compliance, endorsed the majority of Jewish tradition. Speaking, Bing. yeah, speaking of the Jewish tradition within the Mishnah. At times, however, he sho- he shoved tradition aside. His criteria for doing so were based upon the literal commandments of the, of the written Torah. When a tradition contradicted the written commandment of God, the master regarded that tradition as void. A classic example of this is the hand-washing in Mark 7. So, although Boaz Michael and, uh, and uh, James Piles, who, uh, you know, Piles has done work for FOZ, uh, they say that they know of not one ministry that does this. I would uh, I would put forward that FFOZ clearly does this. Not not only that, but uh, you brought up yesterday when we were discussing this, Rob. You brought up the fact that they have published what the Lebertov, <clears throat> who does that all the time. Oh yeah, They're using using the Zohar and using rabbinic texts to to try to, and and Lebertov did that. Lebertov is one of the uh, messianic luminaries, you know, promoted. Um, you know, if you read, he's got a book that's in Hebrew about the life and times of, of Paul. Um, he, he mixes 
the, the Talmud in as if that was the education system that Paul went through. I mean, there's a lot of anachronism going on there. And, um, you know, I, some of, I, I like some of what you read there from that book, that's, that Lancaster. I mean, at least he, he does say, you know, that the Mishnah proper was compiled. You know, he's given somewhat an, of an accurate view of what the majority of, you know, historical scholarship would assert. Um, okay, however, but hang on. I, would, I would say that the, that the, the hand-washing of the Pharisees is uh, very different than the hand-washing that we find later in the, in the Mishnah. In the Mishnah. That, there, that there are two different, you know, the ideology of an oral Torah that goes back to Moses at Sinai was just not part of the world of the Pharisees. And um, there's, you know, issues with that. And well, I think another angle is that there, there are people uh, in the Messianic world. Now, I know I've encountered them. I, I, just to be upfront, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm sure I could find it. That read Acts 15 as the Noahide laws. Oh, yeah, and that's, that's and the, that's now the other point. Now, there might not be, uh, uh, <clears throat> I can't think of any particular Messianic ministry off the top of my head, but I know there are popular teachers. I think Dr. Keener might be one of them. He is, and Lancaster, but Lancaster does it himself. Who will equate the Noahide laws with Acts 15. I got, that's I, another example of anachronism. I got quotes right here from Lancaster ta- talking about the Noahide laws in Acts 15. Some critics argue, this is a quote, some critics argue that since the rabbis formulated the list of seven laws subsequent to the days of the apostles, those laws are not relevant to the t- context of Acts 15. On the contrary, the apocryphal book of Jubilees, 150 BCE, demonstrates that the theological concept behind the laws of Noah already existed well before the days of the apostles. He then quotes that. He called it the apocryphal? Yes. Okay, Jubilees is not apocrypha. Okay. Apocrypha, is, apocrypha is those books that are in the Catholic canon that are not part of the Protestant canon. That's what the apocrypha is. Jubilee's not part of that. That's, that, that's, he's misusing that term. Just okay. anyway. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. That's neither here nor there. Well, neither here nor there. Then he quotes that, okay, uh, which is Jubilee 7, 20 through 32 is what he's quoting here. And uh, there's, he, he's, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, we could read that if we wanted to. Uh, anyway, that is not to say, I'm going to go on with his quote after he quotes Jubilees 7, 20 through 32. That is not to say that the apostles considered observance of the laws of Noah or the four laws of the apostolic decree as sufficient for attaining salvation. The laws of Noah offered Gentile, t- Gentiles a baseline for ethical, moral conduct. But salvation came to the God-fearing Gentile believers through the grace of the Messiah Yeshua. Okay, so uh, basically he's still reading the Noahite laws, which we find much, much, much later back into Acts. My only point in this, I know we've spent a significant amount of time on this first paragraph, but for Piles to assert, and for Boaz Michael to say that uh, they don't know of any ministry that does this, the ministry you work for does this. That's the point. Let's keep going with Piles here, because this is going to get interesting. I know that uh, you know, we're going to have a long show today, I can already tell. Um, I remember there was a FFOZ teaching about the two souls, that you have an animal soul and a, mm-hmm. like a spiritual, a divine soul. I remember that. Um, and that's, to, I mean, th- this kind of teaching, that's, it. now it might, they might not be literally saying, this is in the Mishnah, and this is, was, in, you know, Paul knew this from the Mishnah or early tradition. They might not be explicitly saying that, but by implication, 
by teaching later rabbinic doctrines about the soul and things like that, and teaching them as part of your ministry to get the, supposedly, to get the light of Yeshua and the gospel out into the world, that's the, that's the very point. Okay, I have, a, I have my, my finger ready on the button for the Hoff goes off for this next paragraph, okay? Uh-oh. Here we go. Also, his point—this is back to Piles. Also, his point that—and he's talking about my father's paper now. Also, his point that in the days of, of Jesus that there, was, that there were multiple Judaisms, Pharisees, Essenes, Sadducees, and so on, is hardly a revelation. Again, I don't know anyone in the Messianic Jewish movement who would deny the multi-sect nature of first-century Judaism. On the other hand— if we look at modern Judaism or modern Christianity, we could say the same thing. If there was no one unified Judaism in the day of Jesus, there must certainly be no one monolithic unified modern Christianity either. Of course, I don't understand even why he makes that point. Anyway, well, I'll keep going. The fact that the one that the Christian church exists as perhaps hundreds of... De- I mean, why does... The, 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 uh, let's go back for a second. This statement right here, I, I still don't understand this. What does he think Paul was doing when Paul wrote his letters? Of course there wasn't one unified Christianity. That's ridiculous. Anyway, let's keep going. The fact that the Christian church exists as perhaps hundreds of denominational models and their variants, including one law or, if you will, one Torah, establishes this firmly. Nevertheless, no one balks at, at talking about Christianity or Judaism in the 21st century as if they were specific unified entities, since at their cores, with each individual religion, they contain a basic common set of theologies, doctrines, dogma, and the like that identify them as either Christian or Judaism or Jewish. I balk at it. That's what, that's, what we, that's what we do on this show all the time. The 21st century, Rob and Caleb, here we are, balking at the idea that there was one unified Christianity or Judaism in the first century, or even today. Let's keep going because this is going to get fun. It's as if Tim constructed a very well-written and organized paper based on faulty assumptions about Messianic Judaism. It's never been about the Judaism of late Second Temple times being one unified entity, and it clearly has nothing to do with the belief that the Talmud, which is comprised of Mishnah, Berita, Gemara, Halakha, and Agadah, as we understand it, have existed as the same body of information in the days of Jesus and the apostles as it does today. Actually, I would disagree with him on that, too. The evolution of the Oral Torah and Halakha of Christ's day into what eventually became known as the Talmud is well beyond the scope of this article. And I would just add that one right there. The Oral Torah of Christ's day. Did he say that? Yes, the evolution yeah, of the there, Oral Torah and Halakha of Christ's day. There you go. There is no Oral, oral Torah. Um, now, they're going to go... Oh, hang on now. I'll, I'll fight you on that. They're going to say that... that, uh, that uh, uh, the traditions of the fathers and the traditions of the Pharisees are continued to be talked about throughout the apostolic scriptures. Yeah, but that's not oral Torah. That's not the same as oral Torah. I would agree with you on that. Okay. Oral Torah is a, is a, uh, if we're going to use the term the way the rabbis use the term, oral Torah is a doctrine that Moses received two Torahs at Mount Sinai, one written, one oral, and that you can't understand the written without the oral. That's what oral Torah is in, in the rabbinic worldview. The Pharisees didn't make that kind of claim about their own teachings. Yeshua is the first one to make his, the, uh, such a claim. Heaven Yeshua and, claims he, to have all authority in yeah, heaven and he, earth. Heaven yeah. and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
Okay, so let's go on then. Uh, he says, The evolution of the oral Torah and Halakha of Christ's day into what eventually became known as the Talmud is well beyond the scope of this article, but the seeds of what became Talmud certainly must have existed in some form in the Second Temple period and before. What we know of Hillel and Shammai is recorded in Perkei Avot, which is super late, by the way, which is the ethical teaching and maxims of the rabbis of the Mishnaic period. And yet both Hillel and Shammai predated Yeshua by a generation and the formalization of Mishnah by centuries. In the conclusion, uh, in the conclu uh, conclusions section of Tim's paper, he states, and now this is a quote from my father, we see that th that uh, we see then that there is no historical nor biblical case for accepting oral Torah as divinely sanctioned. Even the suggestion itself is ill-founded, for it both presumes a, a monolithic oral Torah and that the rabbinic authority who for uh, authorities who formulated and compiled the current corpus of rabbinic literature did so by the leading of God. Point seven of the of his end quote. Point seven of his conclusion states, quote, this is my father again, as we avail ourselves of the wealth of rabbinic literature and gain value from uh, the study of it, we must also keep in mind that it is the product of men and not that of divine revelation. It does not come to us with any sense of divine imprimatur, imprimatur nor should the rabbinic, uh, rabbinic literature be considered as having sacred value greater than the works of non-rabbinic authors or sources. All the writings of men must be equally scrutinized in the light of the eternal word of God, the Bible, end quote. Now we're back to piles. There's a certain irony in Tim's statement. If you fix your gaze not on the rabbinic writings that are encapsulated in Talmud, but on another rabbi's writings, which we find in the light of the eternal word of God, the Bible. We take it on faith that the Bible, the Holy Scripture of God, are divinely inspired and not merely the writings of human beings. But even then, most of us don't believe that God simply dictated the Bible to myriads of human beings over several thousands of years of history and that the authors involved were only human word processors. In fact, how much of the personalities and viewpoints of all of these authors made their way into our Holy Scriptures is a hotly debated point among religious scholars and worshipers. I'm not sure why he would bring this up. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's tough when, you know, like we said, this is almost maybe three years ago now. Okay, he's going to go uh, into divine authority, though. So he says, add to that suggestion that the New Testament epistles, which made up the majority of the Christian texts, were actually letters written mostly by Paul with smaller contributions by a handful of others to various early Christian churches, and you begin to wonder about the nature of divine inspiration. No, I don't. Okay, what does he say after that? More than one source has said that the New Testament letters could be of a lesser authority than the Torah. Does he cite anybody? No, he does not. For example... Well, he oh. says, for example, and it may uh, and and may indeed be Paul's midrashim or commentaries on Torah, the Mishnah. Uh, I'm sorry, the Messiah, and on the Abrahamic Mosaic and New Covenants. If this is true, no source, by the way. If this is true, then the barrier between divine authority and human agency in many of our holy writings is a lot thinner than most Christians, perhaps including Tim Hegg, would be comfortable with. Does he say what his perspective is? Uh, no, he does not. Uh, okay, wait, so uh, he... not yet. What if there's merit to the idea that the Talmudic writings and subsequent commentaries, commentaries, judgments, and rulings have divine authority involved, at least to a degree? If we can say that Paul's letters are divine in some manner or fashion, and yet were written by Paul, 
with his mind and emotions fully engaged, and who knows how divine inspiration does, does and doesn't work, then in Galatians, Ephesians, or Colossians, where does Paul leave off and God begin? There's no way to know. I don't understand what he's saying here. Is he saying that there are parts of Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians? He wants to distance himself from Paul. He, he's saying, look, most of the apostolic writings is Paul, you know, with, a little, with only a little contribution from, you know, quote, Jewish, you know, Jewish authors for Jews. I, I get a similar case, I think, was it in uh, whose dissertation on rabbi as priest, rabbi as surrogate priest? It was the, 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 same, uh, the same teacher who teaches that, this term called crypto-supersessionalism, and he was at Fuller. Ugh. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Anyway, crypto-supersessionism, remember the, the guy who... Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, golly. Anyway, he wrote a book called uh, Rabbi as Surrogate Priest, and uh, in the best, starts with a D, his last name, Dowerman, Stuart Dowerman yeah, yeah, there you go. is the name. Um, boy, he uses all sorts of rabbinic stuff to try to uh, understand, I mean, just shotgunning, uh, later rabbinic stuff to try to understand um, first century. But he also he makes a point of, in Jewish, Messianic Jewish congregations, they need to move away from the letters of Paul and focus on the letters of like Peter and James, the, the, those that are for Jews. So there was almost like a sense of the apostolic writings, there's like a, a two, it was like it's like your dad uses the idea of the uh, duplex. These texts are for Gentiles, these are for Jews. So, so in other words, the Jewish New Testament would really not consist of the epistle to the Romans or to Galatians. It would consist of James, Peter, and then the, the, the New Testament for Gentiles. So if we have a Jewish New Testament, we'd have a Gentile New Testament, which would be Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. You know, those messages that are for, for Gentiles. I, I, you know, I got to say, so I've skipped quite a ways down now. And, and I'm having trouble, I'm having trouble with, with what he writes here. Maybe you can explain this to me. <clears throat> he says, in essence... And I know that we've, we've harped on this uh, long enough, but uh, he said, listen to this. He says, in essence, it seems Jesus, to some degree, acknowledged the legitimate authority of the religious leaders in the various Judaisms of his day to have the right to establish Holocaust for their communities. Of course, the Mishnah, as we have it today, didn't exist when the events in Matthew 23 were happening and later recorded. But if Jesus could recognize and still criticize Jewish religious leaders as having the right to establish religious practice for the first century Judaisms, and if that authority was maintained across time as granted by God, I know a big if, and perhaps even as a function of an evolutionary process occurring with global Judaism and the local Judaisms, then maybe we can say that Jewish authority to legitimately define itself and its practice didn't come to an abrupt end when it was nailed to the cross with Jesus. No one is saying that the Mishnah existed in the days of Jesus, Peter, or Paul. But even Tim Hag must acknowledge some sort of halakha did exist as established by the Pharisees and scribes. Factor in Rabinowitz, and you have established that Jesus agreed in principle that the Jewish religious authority were legitimate and he acknowledged much of their halakha. Okay, now, there's a problem with this, in my mind. 
he's he he is uh, suggesting in in my mind what he's suggesting here is that the scribes and the Pharisees were the standard of halakha across lines. They were the Judaism of the first century. The problem is, is that, yes, we see Yeshua discussing with the scribes and the Pharisees. Rob and I disagree on this. I think that Yeshua actually held to a more Pharisaic or would have possibly even considered himself a Pharisee. Rob doesn't agree with me on that. Fair enough. Let's not get into it right now. But the point is, is that he discusses with the scribes and the Pharisees predominantly within, within the, the apostolic scriptures. That doesn't mean that they were the only pony uh, show in, in town. Yeshua, Yeshua, here's the way I think that we need to think of it. Yeshua didn't come to endorse a certain political or religious party. He came with a, an agenda, and just because someone else's religious party might agree with Yeshua's agenda on this or that point doesn't legitimate their whole political party. It's the same thing like we get with this uh, using uh, Metatron in the Zohar, like Shapira does, okay? Yeshua's Metatron, who is Enoch, and this mess with the, the, <laughs> some prayer traditions for, for Rosh Hashanah, etc. Have, have the name Yeshua in there with Sar HaPanim, the, you know, and, the, and Metatron. Okay. Or we find something in Perkei Avot, maybe. Like, I, I, haven't, I don't know this... The, the teacher that you mentioned, Caleb, that sent you kindly sent you this material. But just because I find somewhere else in the world, external to to the canon of Scripture, just because I find somewhere out there a truth that reinforces my place in and the truth of my tradition, doesn't therefore mean that that external source is all is legitimate. All it does it just reinforces what I know from my faith, and there might be a sprinkling of it that you see here in this tradition or in that text out there that are external. But just because you find something that reflects back to you the truth of your place in Messiah Yeshua, that doesn't mean that now that's part of the canon. That doesn't mean that that's now oh we can endorse that or therefore Yeshua taught the same thing as Hillel did, you know therefore. Larger, it must legitimate larger Judaism. No, yet most of what we see is Yeshua criticizing the leaders because he's not going to budge on the truth. Yeah. If one of them happened to, to express something that was a, a Torah truth, Yeshua's not going to tell them they're wrong. But on the flip side, he was there with his agenda and the people spoke. The leaders, those same leaders, you know, they spoke, they had their day. And they, Yeshua ended up on, they, they, he was mocked, beaten, spit upon, hung on a tree, or, you know, nailed to the cross. And, uh, you know, th that's, that's the situation. We have it again with, with uh, Acts chapter 7, with uh, Stephen in front of the, the Sanhedrin. Leave it to our, leave it to... You know, he, he didn't, he, Stephen didn't go, oh, you know, you guys, look, you have your tradition, you're good, you know, just keep doing what you're doing, you go, you have authority to do what you're doing to govern Israel. No, it was a sharp rebuke, and when he said, I see, you know, the heavens open, and I see the Son of Man, you know, see Yeshua sitting at the right 
hand to the Father and says, uh, Lord, don't count the sin against them. Lord, Yeshua, receive my spirit. And they're like tearing their clothes and, you know. Okay, if we believe that this is true history, that this happened, we have to recognize that there's a, a judgment against the leadership of Israel. And why else would Yeshua say the temple was going to be destroyed? It's not an endorsement of, of any of the Judaisms. That's not what Yeshua came to do. He came to say, look, it's supposed to be a, a, a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of thieves, right? I mean, that... Leave it to our, uh, to our chat room. Come up with a, to come up with a, uh, a uh, ministry that certainly does teach exactly what uh, what Pyle says no ministry does. Joe Good, Joe Good's ministry is completely founded on the idea that the Mishnah was extant and is speaking directly of the first century. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So, so I think those guys are. Uh, yeah, the, the idea that it's not out there, I think it's like, yeah, you know, it is. It's out there. And the reason— You don't want to admit uh, it, but it's out there. Right, That's and the, the reason Tim Haig chose the title he did, what version of the Mishnah did Paul read, was to to get people to go, oh, yeah, that is a caricature. Why is—and then then what it does, it gets the weird, well, okay, yeah, I guess this is something—he's using hyperbole, right, or what do you call it? He's exaggerating the point— so that we remember the, the lesson. I think that's, uh, and I think it accomplishes that. But it seems like in this review, it's taken too, like they t- too seriously. Like, I don't really know anybody who says that Paul read the Mishnah. Well, probably not, because that's uh, uh, in the exaggerated form. But we've seen, we've given plenty of examples of today um, where it's taken for granted as being history. Okay. I think that's good. Okay, so uh, I hope you enjoyed this look at, uh, well, various different topics. But, uh, yeah, send us, uh, send us some emails. Tell us what you want us to talk about. We, uh, by God's grace, we continue to find uh, good topics. At least I think they're good topics. Things that people seem to be very, be very interested in. Um, yeah. Anything, anything else, Rob? Nope. <laughs> All right. Send us email, chagatorresource.com or vanhoffatorresource.com. Don't forget to like our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Robin Caleb Show. And of course, you can find uh, Torah Resource on Twitter at Torah Resource. You can find uh, Torah Resource at torahresource.com. And uh, you can find uh, my YouTube page where you can find all sorts of videos, youtube.com backslash Caleb Hegg. I think that's about it for us. So I hope that what we have talked about today in some way has given some insight and has glorified our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. <laughs>